Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Malpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. There's no question COVID 19 has disrupted higher education. Later in the show, we talk with researcher Thomas Brock about how community colleges nationwide have handled the pandemic. Brock is the director of the Community College Research Center at Columbia University's Teachers College. We also check in with Connecticut faculty and staff at state community colleges and universities. How are they holding up this academic year? First, we talk with a reporter from Inside Higher Ed, and we want to hear from you. Are you a college student or a parent of one? How are you feeling about the upcoming semester? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now on Zoom, Colleen Flaherty, who's a faculty reporter at Inside Higher Ed. Colleen, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. So I've lost track of the months that we've been in this pandemic. I'm sure I'm not the only Me one. Yeah. <laughs> when we when we think about uh, how faculty and staff at our nation's colleges and universities have been dealing with this pandemic, what's their morale like right now? What are they telling you? Mm-hmm. Um, well, reporting on this back in March, um, I think that um, there was an idea that, wow, this is very hard right now but we're going to pull together. We're going to get ourselves, our institutions, our students through this. And there was, I mean, absolute um, stress and, um, you know, nerves, but there was um, a sense of coming together and tackling a common, uh, you know, obstacle uh, crisis. And uh, what I see now is that um, kind of like, you know, underlying enthusiasm for the task at hand has really waned. People are absolutely exhausted. Professors are going into their third semester, you know, and most places doing this now. And um, what I'm hearing again and again is that the burnout is actually starting now. And so obviously that uh, has implications for professors, um, you know, in their, you know, careers and their personal lives, um, you know, but also ultimately for, you um, you know, the ability to, their ability to, to teach well. So we're in the month of January. This is usually when schools are starting up the spring semester. What is it looking like right now, Colleen? Are schools continuing to shift and continuing to be online because of the, the number of cases skyrocketing around the country? Right. Um, I would say it is uh, a mix out there. Um, I don't think anybody expected it to go on, uh, you know, sort of this long. Um, and I know that there are some institutions that are looking ahead, uh, moving forward, um, full steam with uh, vaccination plans for their faculty and staff as well. Um, so they're trying to um, stick with in-person, but many other institutions at the same time uh, have decided that, no, we're just, you know, we, we've had 
too many start stops and we're going to um, stay online, you know, for at least for the foreseeable future until we can give our, you know, students, faculty, staff, like a solid answer. How are institutions leadership responding when you're talking about faculty and staff reaching that burnout level? We know that a shift to online uh, can be very uh, labor intensive. And mm -hmm. there's also, you know, the fact that when you're online, whether you're at a public school or even a higher education institution, you don't have that same kind of connection with students and the ability to maybe meet with them office hours if they're having trouble Every, doing everything online, it takes a toll. Right, right. Well, I would say that some institutions are being um, as responsive, you know, as they certainly uh, believe that they can under the circumstances. They're putting out a lot of fires on a lot of different fronts. Um, I've seen some institutions uh, lengthen, for example, uh, winter break. I have seen them put in reading days slash mental health days into the upcoming semester. Um, and, you know, generally trying to reach out, especially kind of at the, you know, dean's level, chair's level to their faculty members and check in with them. Um, at the same time, for, you know, all the reasons that you mentioned, um, it's, it's hard to kind of be there and provide that support for faculty members. So in a lot of ways, they're trying to, or having to create it on their own, you know, leaning on certain, uh, you know, colleagues within their department. Um, but it's definitely, I mean, I, I'd say it remains a very, you know, individual struggle on a lot of fronts, which again contributes to that sense of burnout. I think it's important that you mentioned mental health, Colleen, mm -hmm. when we think about just, you know, in one sense, the challenge of doing this online and the actual work that both teaching staff and students are putting in, but also just the impact that COVID has had on all of us. And when we think about teachers that are getting sick or if uh, teachers are noticing students uh, dealing with the ramifications of COVID, whether they're falling ill or there's someone in their family that's gotten COVID, I mean, that is a that is also a huge challenge. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how you've had conversations with both teachers and, and college students about you know, that impact on, on well-being. Right. Um, I know that there is um, a strong uh, you know, emerging emphasis on trauma-informed instruction because for a lot of uh, you know, students, they have experienced trauma you know, in, their, in their personal lives related to COVID, whether it's um, you know, extreme uh, financial hardship, death in the family, they've had it themselves, just, uh, you know, dramatic upheaval of everyday life. Um, and so I know students in a lot of cases are leaning on their faculty members more. And faculty members, I think, are really, um, you know, rising by and large to this challenge to be there for their students. Um, but again, this isn't something that necessarily faculty members have had explicit training for. And sometimes, as much as they want to help um, dealing with the um, dramatically increased mental health needs of their students, again, contributes to their own sense of burnout. You're hearing Colleen Flaherty here on Where We Live. She's faculty reporter at Inside Higher Het Ed. As we take time to focus on higher education today, uh, this is the third semester, as Colleen mentioned, that uh, teaching staff and students around our nation are dealing uh, with the pandemic and online learning. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sarah's calling from Basra. Sarah, go ahead. When we think about faculty staff. Hi, yeah, Sarah, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Turn the radio down and tell us what you'd like to share. 
Hi. Yeah. Um, my, my name is Sarah Klimek. Um I just graduated from the University of Vermont this December um, with a uh, Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Studies, double minor, um, food systems and nutrition and food science. Um, and for me, the pandemic has definitely been difficult. Um, I was a teaching assistant um, at the graduate level this semester. So kind of balancing working with students um, at um, making sure that their well-being um, was up to par, uh, keeping my own, working a couple jobs here and there. Um, but for me, um, I was when I was applying to um, start my master's program, it was really interesting because a lot of the schools that I had apply, applied to had waived their GRE requirements um, because of the pandemic. You know, you can't expect kids to go out, um, find a testing center and whatnot. Um, so it's definitely, I feel like the pandemic has definitely been a best blessing and a curse, um, for my own education, both, um, undergrad and graduate. Well, thank you, Sarah, for sharing that with us. Uh, Colleen, when we think about uh, teaching staff, we're not just talking about tenured faculty, but so many adjunct professors, uh, many right. of them who don't have the same job security as tenured track. Mm -hmm. They don't have sick leave. How has this impacted them? Right. Um, well, tenured faculty or untenured faculty members, so um, adjuncts, uh, professors teaching, you know, off the tenure track, um, sometimes full time, uh, more typically part time. Um, they are always the most uh, precarious workers in academe, um, you know, at the kind of beyond um, within the faculty ranks, let's say. And this uh, pandemic has absolutely um, highlighted that and exacerbated that. Um, several institutions um, are in, you know, financial dire straits to the extent that they are laying off tenured faculty members now or considering doing so. But so many institutions have already laid off their non-tenure track faculty members who in many cases are long-term faculty members at the institutions, have relationships with students, um, but now suddenly in the mid you know, in the midst of a pandemic and a widespread hiring freeze across academe, they are jobless, they are without any benefits that they might have had, and they're in a very, very difficult place. And how are students responding to this? What are you hearing at institutions? How are students responding? Um, I are think they noticing that the, the, the changes right. when these... Right. Um, I would say that the, you know, it's kind of interesting. A lot of students actually don't know, um, you know, even today, the difference between tenure track, non-tenure track. Uh, they don't know whether their uh, professor is an adjunct or not. Um, so sometimes their questions, um, you know, it, it might, they might not only realize until they're trying to sign up for that great professor's course the next semester and they're not on, um, you know, they're not teaching any courses and they don't know why. Um, so it's, you know, it just creates this another level, I would say, of like discontinuity and disconnection between, um, you know, they're all sort of experiencing now, but uh, between students and institutions when um, suddenly, you know, a, a layer of uh, supportive faculty is, is gone. You mentioned uh, tenured track, uh, people uh, being uh, laid off, and I'm wondering, when we think about trends moving forward, what does this mean mm -hmm. for institutions and how they approach tenure? Right. I would say uh, that is something that I'm definitely um, looking out for. Um, typically, to there's kind of a, a tradition um, within higher ed um, 
institutions generally follow standards um, laid out by the American Association of University Professors, which make it very, very difficult to lay off tenured faculty members um, to get rid of them for anything other than, you know, cause if they did something bad. You know, generally, um, if you're doing a good job, you institutions um, have to try to try to work with you, even in even if they're having financial hardship, unless they're in a true financial emergency. And so what I'm seeing now, to some extent, is some fudging of the idea of an emergency. Are institutions in, you know, dire straits because of the pandemic, like, you know, so many Americans are? Um, or are the, you know, lights about to go off? And um, we're, we're just sort of seeing um, a lot of gray area there, through which I think a lot of administrators are trying to push through um, agendas that they've had for some time to decrease the tenured ranks within their institutions because in their view, tenured faculty uh, limit their flexibility to be able to respond to changing enrollment trends, um, things like pandemics. Um, I even had one uh, dean at the University of Colorado at Boulder tell me in an interview, never waste a good pandemic when he was proposing his plan to go forward with fewer tenured, uh, tenured faculty members. So he has mm-hmm. since backed down from that comment. But I do feel that that was a moment of transparency um, that, uh, you know, reflects the thinking of administrators in many places. You can join our conversation as we focus on higher education today. My guest, Colleen Flaherty, who's a faculty reporter at Inside Higher Ed. Uh, Before we uh, shift and and talk more about your reporting on the Connecticut State University's college system, I wanted to ask you to talk more about what colleges and universities are singing in terms of enrollment, Colleen, the fact that there was a lot of concern about as online education continues, would students feel like this was valuable and they would stick with their programs? Right. Um, So typically in recessions, um, poor economic environments, uh, institution, uh, higher education does well because people want to sort of ride out their time on the poor job market, building up their skills. Obviously, the pandemic uh, turns that uh, kind of law on its head, and uh, we have seen um, enrollments, I would say, at four-year universities not crash like some expected that they would, but they're definitely challenged in this environment. And we see um, especially troubling enrollment trends at community colleges. When you talk about the troubling trends, what do you mean? Uh, just, um, I mean, the kind of enrollment trends, sudden dips in enrollment that make it make institutions uh, worry. Um, so, you know, I think we're seeing like 10 to 20 percent in, in some places uh, declines in enrollment from year over year, which is obviously, I mean, you're talking about one fifth um, fewer students uh, year over year, which makes it really difficult for community colleges to to ride this out mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, uh, op- you know, responding to a a dip like that. 
Uh, we did reach out to uh, Connecticut State Colleges and Universities uh, system, uh, and we wanted to just read part of the statement in terms of what we're just talking about with enrollment. Uh, Dr. Jade Gates is the interim president of the system here, and in the statement, uh, she writes, we cannot overstate the urgency of improving the community college's fiscal situation in the fall 2020 semester, largely because of COVID. Dr. Gates says enrollment at the community colleges declined by 15% over the same time a year earlier. I think that's a good transition into the conversation about how you've been reporting on uh, Connecticut's uh, response and changes in higher education. Uh, we know, and we've talked about this for, oh gosh, I've, I've lost track of all of the shows when we focused on how the Connecticut Community College system is in the process of merging. There's also current contract negotiations, Colleen. Uh, tell us uh, what you've been reporting on here in our state. Right. Well, uh, the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities uh, system was formed in two, uh, 2011 to uh, put the four state colleges and community, 12 community colleges under the same kind of governing uh, board and system. Um, and so what we saw in 2018, somewhat unsuccessfully and more successfully uh, in 2019, was a proposal by that system to um, consolidate administrative functions of, of those 12 community colleges and their satellite campuses under a single centrally managed authority. So uh, instead of 12 separate presidents for each college, there would be three regional presidents. Um, the reason for doing this, according to the system, is that uh, it will be a lot cheaper uh, in terms of administrative uh, staff positions to operate this way. Um, thus far, they're saying that faculty, academic, and student affairs staff will not be affected, but 23% of uh, 750 administrative staff positions will be cut, some through retirements. Um, and the idea is that this will save the system $23 million a year. Um, this is supposed to be in place by 2023. And as recently as uh, the summer, you know, things were full steam ahead on this plan. So that's been going on uh, for the last uh, right. few years now, right. and faculty have been very open and, and also right. other teaching staff uh, with their concerns. But there's also these contract negotiations, which right. normally happen, uh, you know, in uh, behind closed doors. But this has now become uh, open and public. Why is right. that, Colleen? Right. So typically, yes, faculty members um, and administrators tend to keep contract negotiations very close to the vest unless, you know, there's one or two issues typically towards the end of negotiations that they really just cannot move past, the, uh, you know, internally. And sometimes the faculty, you know, both sides will put out a statement or the union might threaten to strike. Um, but very unusually in December, the uh, state universities union came out and said, um, basically, you know, objected right off the bat to a set of what they call draconian proposals in a first uh, union contract draft from the system. And I will say that in, you know, years of looking at uh, contracts and what institutions and their faculty unions uh, tend to go to bat over, this, this was really striking to me in both number and content um, so the first draft proposed to scrap from the contract procedural protections regarding academic freedom, terminations and retention, especially salient in this online environment, faculty ownership of original online course materials and the right to teach them, 
conference, travel and research funds, university-wide tenure committees, and privacy and grievance policies for personnel files. Um, the system also wants to increase teaching loads from 12 credit hours per semester to 15, which doesn't mean you're just working three extra hours per week. It you know, me, probably means about nine extra hours per week because the general rule is that for every hour that you're in the classroom with students, it takes about two or more to prepare for that. Uh, they want to change the uh, academic calendar. And they, uh, you know, beyond kind of fundamental things like that, there's a little bit more of a sense of like administrative desire for control here. So they want each full-time faculty member to have to hold up to, to have to hold 10 office hours per week up from the current five with at least two on the ground at the campus so that, you know, faculty members, they're kind of dictating where faculty members have to hold their hours. And then part-time faculty members who aren't necessarily compensated for this work at all would also be required to advise students as needed, as opposed to having to make a reasonable effort to do so as they do now. And Colleen, again, we did reach out to uh, the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities system uh, in a statement from Dr. Jane Gates, interim president. She says it's long been the Board of Regents policy not to negotiate contracts in public, right. uh, but to engage in good faith efforts at the bargaining table. And we will continue to do just that. She goes on to say the students we serve are the top priority for the board and everything they do. Our goal with contract negotiations is to ensure students receive the best quality education possible. And we're working to increase the number of hours our highly qualified full-time faculty spend in the class and individual mm -hmm. contact with students. And we're going to be hearing from uh, Connecticut faculty and staff uh, coming up uh, in just a few minutes uh, about uh, not only this, but just the pandemic as a whole and the impact on them and their students. But when you, um, Colleen, because we're almost out of time here, when we think about how higher institutions are really going to have to shift, uh, continue to shift, even after this pandemic is is over, what are you going to be watching for? Right. Um, well, one thing I, I would just want to mention about Connecticut as well is that this contract, the current contract caps the share of the faculty that's contingent or part-time at 20%, um, and the current proposal has no such cap. So related to your question, I'm definitely going to be looking at how um, institutions, um, you know, come through this with potentially new policies and you know public attitudes regarding tenure um i'm going to be looking uh at faculty ownership of online course content traditionally those courses belong to the faculty members who create them so if you're taking away faculty ownership it could feasibly be easy for institutions to hire potentially you know non-expert faculty members in a, in a given um you know subfield to kind of use the course that a expert faculty member taught as the framework for their course um you know so this has a lot of academic freedom implications so as always i'm kind of looking at you know at, at long term at, at academic freedom and, and tenure trends but i am especially looking at them now as we hopefully start to emerge from covid that's colleen flaherty faculty reporter for inside higher ed colleen thank you for your context that you provided yes this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Again, we're going to hear from Connecticut faculty and staff after the break. And we hope to have Dr. Jane Gates on or other administrators from the CSCU system for a future show. Now, whether you're a Connecticut college student or faculty member, how are you feeling about the upcoming spring semester? You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We're focusing on higher education today. Joining me now on Zoom is Maureen Chalmers, president of the Congress of Connecticut Community Colleges, known as the Four C's Union, and she works at Northwestern Connecticut Community College in Winstead. Maureen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Also with us, Dr. Patty O'Neill, president of the Connecticut State University American Association of Universities Professors, and she is a professor at Western Connecticut State University. Patty, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So we just talked uh, with Colleen about uh, the fact that contract negotiations uh, have become public at this point. So let's start there with those proposals. Uh, Patty, I'll start with you because you are president of the Connecticut State University American Association of University Professors. Uh, tell me the concerns of you and your other colleagues uh, when we think about uh, where higher education is going in our state. So um, I just want to clarify something. The negotiations are not public. Um, what has been made public are the proposals from both sides. Um, and I know it seems unprecedented, but we felt very strongly that it was important that people understand exactly what the Board of Regents is proposing for higher education in Connecticut. Um, CSUAUP feels that Connecticut should be an education destination, um, attracting students and faculty members. Um, the Board of Regents is trying to use um, faculty members um, to deal with the financial impact of COVID, with the financial impact of the consolidation. Um, these proposals by the board um, are going to be eliminating academic freedom for faculty members. Um, as you already mentioned with Colleen, increasing our workload, increasing the number of hours that we, we spend with um, meeting office hours. All of this will decrease our ability to engage in creative activity. It will decrease the amount of time we can spend with student organizations um, as advisors it will decrease the amount of time that we can spend um, developing innovative and creative ways of teaching and research. Um, so the board's proposals are very negative and in the past, and, and they are a serious break um, from the proposals the board has offered in the past, which is another reason we felt very strongly that we needed to educate people about what the board is proposing. So, Patty, what are some solutions or where do you want to get to uh, with uh, administrators, uh, with the Connecticut State College and University system? Uh, because uh, even before the pandemic, uh, funding has been an issue. Um, it's something, as you just mentioned, that the Board of Regents has pointed to when they look at uh, consolidating the community college uh, system. And so I'm just wondering what you can tell us about uh, how some of the proposals faculty have to move forward. So we have proposals. Um, our proposals focus on um, making the system more family friendly, um, making the system more community oriented, um, trying to address uh, racial inequities. Um, so our, our proposals are positive. Um, we're pointing towards where we would like the system to be. Now, with respect to the financial impact of COVID, 
uh, you know, undeniably, there's an impact. Um, we have fewer students enrolled. We have fewer students um, in residence on the campuses. We, we recognize there's a financial impact, but this consolidation of the community colleges that has been going on or an attempt of going on since 2017 is, you know, supposedly supposed to be saving $23 million. It's the $23 million is always the figure that's mentioned. Um, but I just want to point out there's $35 million being allocated to this one consolidated community college that currently doesn't have any students. So rather than trying to use faculty members and students as ATMs to solve the financial crisis, why not take that $35 million that the board has allocated for this institution that doesn't have any students and doesn't serve any students and reallocate it back to the community colleges and the universities? I think that's a starting point. Maureen Chalmers, I wanted to get you in on this conversation because you do represent uh, Connecticut Community Colleges uh, with the four C's. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, morale uh, within the community college system and, and how you and your colleagues hope to move forward. Well, we've been struggling in regards to the consolidation for several years. All 12 community college senates have voted in opposition, uh, a vote of no confidence. Uh, in this plan, and it uh, has just become worse uh, since this has all um, started to happen. And then with the pandemic as well, it's made it more difficult for us to engage with uh, our college leadership. Our college leadership has really been uh, made into figureheads. They don't really have the authority to make decisions on a lot of the, the things that needed to happen at a COVID level. You know. Um, addressing college uh, needs. You know, the, the Board of Regents has been um, taking resources and in, 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 in building their, their little nest egg at 61 Woodland while the campuses are struggling in order to make the needs financially to meet the needs of the students with this pandemic going on. Mm. Uh, Patty mentioned that uh, faculty and, and students shouldn't be seen as ATMs, but what about uh, the fact that the state legislature and when we think about previous governors the chronic underfunding of higher education in our state and the fact that now the pandemic has exacerbated that and so i guess maureen um, as we move forward what are some other solutions beyond cutting faculty and potential tuition hikes in the future which hasn't, hasn't been proposed but it's something that everyone's thinking about yeah. Uh, the union and all of our members are opposed to putting this on the backs of our students. As you know, students in community colleges frequently, you know, gifted uh, people uh, are economically challenged and the pandemic made it very apparent. As uh, Ms. Flaherty had said earlier, uh, we're looking at a 15% reduction in the number of our students. And, and the only way we could really explain this is that many of our students may have been hit by COVID by having someone in their family lose income, them or a parent losing income. So they chose not to take courses. A vast majority of the students that disappeared were because they don't have the technology that's necessary to convert from an on-ground class 
to an online class. Many of our students, particularly in urban areas, uh, for them to be able to participate online, they had to use a cell phone because they were sharing a solitary computer at home or they didn't have the internet speed in order to be able to participate. And the cell phones, you know, were being used at the Starbucks and the Dunkin' Donuts. And in March, those those in, those uh, businesses were closed, so they didn't have access to the internet. Many of our colleges really did heroic efforts in getting Wi-Fi to our students. Uh, at my college in the Northwest corner, we had Wi-Fi uh, signal put out to our, our parking lots and our students would drive in with their laptops and their cell phones. They would download the assignments or watch um, the professor you know, conduct their class online and then they would drive back later to upload their homework and assignments. So our students have a greater difficulty in being able to, to shift from on grounds to online. So uh, we don't, we know that because that's because of the economics. So to increase their tuition, some of those students will never return even after the pandemic is over. I wanted to fit in a couple of listener calls. Uh, John's calling in actually from Massachusetts. I know your question was to Colleen, but it, I think it's something that also uh, the Connecticut faculty and staff representing could also address. John, do you want to go ahead? Uh, sure. Um, I'd just like to say uh, hello to Patty and Maureen. Uh, my, my question uh, is um, uh, about the BOR, right? It seems to be a, a failed entity. It seems to have failed outright. And now with the most recent contract proposals, um, they basically are waving the white flag, right, uh, that they've sort of given up on the system, right? I mean, um, they've allowed it to be uh, underfunded for a number of years. Uh, but I, I guess I would like to hear Patty talk about how uh, really the attack on faculty um, seems to me uh, to be an attack on students and that these proposals that have been put on the table uh, seems to me to, to, to do real damage to um, students, right, in mm -hmm. terms of their accessibility, in terms of the educational experience they're going to have uh, in the institution. So I'd like to hear her talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that. And, okay. John, you mentioned BOR, that's Board of Regents. Uh, Patty, go ahead. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, um, we think Connecticut should be an education destination. Um, and, and we structured our proposals with that in mind. Um, with respect to the BOR proposals, um, what they're going to do uh, if they are enacted is drastically reduce um, students' accessibility to faculty members because faculty members, um, because our workload will be significantly increased, um, it's not just another three hours per week that it's being increased. Um, we're gonna, our expectations for promotion and tenure will remain the same, which means um, if we're trying to hire people, um, you know, fresh out of graduate, graduate school, just completed their PhDs who are um, innovative, um, have all these great ideas um, for teaching, um, no one's going to want to come to Connecticut as a faculty member with the incredible teaching load and the incredible expectations for creative activity. Mm -hmm. So these may look like cost-saving measures, but they will have a significant 
and long-term and negative effect on the quality of education that the universities provide. And we're going to have to unfortunately end it there. But again, we've had many discussions related uh, to this consolidation and the future of higher ed, and and we will continue to do so. I did want to point out uh, the Connecticut Mirror reporting the other day that uh, Connecticut has nearly $92 billion in unfunded long-term liabilities. More than two-thirds of that involve pension and other retirement program debt. This has been a consistent problem year after year. The reason I bring that up is because whenever we talk to Keith Faniff at the Connecticut Mirror, the two places that the legislature and the governor look to cut often are social services and higher education. And so it'll be interesting to see how the legislature handles uh, Lamont's budget moving forward. But I want to thank uh, our guest today, Maureen Chalmers, president of the Congress of Connecticut Community Colleges and works at Northwestern Connecticut Community Colleges for joining today. And Dr. Patty O'Neill, president of the Connecticut State University American Association of University Professors. She teaches at Western Connecticut. Connecticut State University. And Patty, I understand today is your birthday. Thank you for coming on and, and happy birthday to you. Thank you so much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to zoom out and hear more about how community college systems across our country have been affected by the pandemic. You can join us too. find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As we've mentioned, there's no question COVID-19 has disrupted higher education. We heard Inside Higher Ed reporter earlier Colleen Flaherty say enrollment has gone down in community colleges nationwide. And what have been the other effects of the pandemic on these programs? Joining us now is researcher Thomas Brock. He's the director of the Community College Research Center at Columbia University's Teachers College. Tom, welcome to the show. Good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, first, could you respond to what you heard uh, related to uh, efforts uh, to reach uh, not only contract uh, in uh, the higher education system, but also the consolidation of community colleges? This has been a, a contentious uh, topic for a few years now here in our state. I understand that. Well, this is not an area that we have been involved in studying, but um, uh, let me just say, first of all, I think any kind of major system change of this type is going to be disruptive even in the best of times uh, and we're certainly not in the best of times with covid uh, everyone's attentions are directed elsewhere we're all living in an environment of operating on zoom and via computer and it's just more difficult to communicate and i think that makes any kind of reorganization uh, more challenging um, that said uh, you know there are examples around the country of systems that have consolidated in this way uh, probably the best example is in Indiana. Uh, what's known as the Ivy Tech system uh, is a single statewide community college system. It has more than 40 campuses uh, statewide. Uh, it, it has been in place for a long time. So this is not a recent change there, but uh, Indiana's community college system is generally reputed to be one of the strongest in the country, uh, no matter what outcomes you look at, uh, employment outcomes, transfer, outcomes, uh, employment outcomes. So, you know, there may be certainly some good reasons to be thinking about this in the long run. Uh, whether this is the moment uh, for Connecticut is, is an open question.
Uh, Inside Higher Ed reported uh, back uh, earlier this year, former president of our state college and university system, Marco Jakian, he told the accrediting body back in July that, quote, he believed the recession and pandemic will lead to an enrollment surge for community colleges. That hasn't been the case, Tom. Uh, We just got an updated statement from CSCU saying that enrollment has dipped 15 percent. Is this being seen across the country? It is. This is a nationwide trend. Uh, No state uh, is an exception from this rule. Uh, Nationwide, we see a little more than 10% drop in enrollment at community colleges. Uh, The drop is happening among all groups, among men and women, among all racial ethnic groups, uh, among all income groups. Uh, But that said, where we see the steepest declines uh, is among uh, Black and Latinx students, um, Black males in particular, Uh, more than a 20% drop in enrollment from the prior year. And so how are you seeing institutions and states responding to this? Because when we think about uh, COVID-19 disproportionately affecting uh, people of color in our country, and and you're telling me that when we look at enrollment, that's that's impacting um, uh, students of color. Absolutely. It's it's affecting the students that uh, many of us are most concerned about because these are students uh, who uh, need higher education, uh, who need it uh, to get access to good jobs, to advance uh, in their careers. Um, They are the students uh, that we really need to be most concerned about uh, in any time, but particularly during a a pandemic uh, as this. We did uh, some analysis looking at data from the U.S. Census Bureau uh, to try to understand better why students have changed their plans, why uh, college education in particular has been so disrupted. And uh, what we've seen uh, makes sense, I think, based on what we know about the pandemic generally. Uh, The pandemic has most affected communities of color, Black and and Latinx communities in particular. Um, And as we dig down into some of that census data, uh, indeed, it is students from households uh, uh, in these communities. uh, They're Uh, They report that they themselves or others in their households have been affected by the virus, uh, that they are deeply concerned about the virus. Um, The other issue that they raise is affordability. And, uh, you know, by and large, uh, Black and Latinx students do come from lower income households and they are more worried about simply their ability to pay for college. Um, If you look at their responses in comparison to students attending four-year colleges and universities, we see a pretty significant gap. So again, just underscoring uh, the communities, the people that have been most affected by uh, the disease itself are also those that are least likely to be showing up at college this fall. When we think of community college programs, Tom, a lot of hands-on learning too, but how has that, when we think about the shift into online education, how has that affected uh, enrollment and even the fact we heard Maureen Chalmers saying a lot of their students uh, having issues even being able to to get online? That is right. Um, You know, this shift to online enrollment, uh, I think we can look at uh, from two vantage points. Uh, On the one hand, Uh, It really is remarkable that uh, colleges and universities generally and community colleges uh, particularly have been able to make this shift so quickly. You know, nobody anticipated anything like this pandemic. Uh, Starting last spring, nearly all campuses around the country shifted very quickly to an online format. 
And by and large, uh, in the spring semester last year, they were able to retain the students that they had. Now this happened midway through the semester. Um, but what we've seen as time has gone on, uh, as students became more aware that courses would continue to be online, uh, they simply have decided to hold back to uh, perhaps wait a year uh, or perhaps just not go to college at all uh, because they're concerned about the format. They don't think that online learning will work for them in their situation. And the reasons for that, uh, you know, some of your other guests have already noted, uh, they themselves may not have uh, good computer access. Uh, they may have computer access, but they may be in a household with small children who also need to use it for their schooling, uh, or they simply don't have the quiet space in which to focus on classes and, uh, you know, conduct their work online. So mm -hmm. all of these, all of these issues are uh, of concern. Um, the issue that you raised too about the kinds of instruction community colleges offer. So many of the classes at community colleges are hands-on. Uh, many of the programs have a clear occupational focus and purpose. Uh, most healthcare professionals, for example, most nurses are trained through community colleges. That is a very hands-on profession. And while you can do some instruction online, it really is critical to be in uh, settings where you can be working with patients or uh, many times dummies or you know other kinds of equipment to know how to use it, how to use it with a live patient. That's a difficult kind of instruction to do via the computer. You know, we look at the pandemic, we all hope that these are short-term trends, but I can't help but wonder if this is going to be a multi-generational issue for higher education moving forward, Tom, when you have even uh, students in high school, whether it's their junior or senior year, and because online education wasn't a right fit for them, or they dropped out, or they didn't get the type of education that they needed at the time, how this impacts higher education in the next several years. I think everyone in, in the higher education field is very worried about this uh, because uh, we know historically that the longer students wait between high school and starting college, the less likely they are ever to go to, to college. So we may potentially just be looking at uh, a lost generation of students. Uh, I think so much matters too, just in terms of what college, uh, what students perceive themselves as able to do, what they perceive as viable opportunities for them. Uh, and, you know, just one pernicious effect uh, of this pandemic is that I think it is causing everyone to, you know, withdraw a bit uh, to perhaps uh, envision a smaller world, a smaller set of possibilities for themselves than they did prior to the pandemic. Uh, I think, you know, going forward, we're going to have to be very attentive, not only to the financial needs of students and, and kind of the academic preparation that's needed to go to college, but also just attitudinally uh, putting students back in the mindset that this is a viable option for you, that it's something you should consider, that you need to consider if you want to earn the best income, maintain the, the greatest opportunities for yourself and your family in your adult life. Thomas Brock, again, is director of the Community College Research Center at Columbia University's Teachers College. Uh, Tom, thank you for your perspective on this issue. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. On the phones today, Carmen Baskoff. We hope you join us on Tuesday. We'll have special programming on Monday for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.